The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Are we on? We are. Fantastic. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Today, our passage from Hebrews is Hebrews 4, 1 through 10, um, and that can be found on page 582 of the Blue Bibles in the back. So if you don't have one, um, feel free to grab one. You can use it just for this morning, or you can take that home with you if you need one. And we will be reading from the ESV. So if you'll stand for the reading of God's word, please. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the, word, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Amen. Good morning. Please bow with me as we pray. Our great God, we praise you that though you are high and exalted, you also desire to commune with us. This is the whole point of your word. This is the whole point of redemptive history. You have reached out to us time after time. You have invited us in. You give us such a great revelation to know you to engage with you. You look on us in compassion. In Psalm 2, God, you say, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so, Lord, we want to do that this morning. And God, I pray pray that you would give us grace to hear and to believe the good news this morning, whether it's for the first time or the millionth time. We know that only you can give us life to the fullest. So God, please give us ears to hear. Please give us soft hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, apparently um, about 24% of teenagers are constantly online. Now, that number actually seems low to me based on my own experiences. Um, and one of the problems that's emerged from this constant awareness, this constant, constant presence on social media, 
is, um, it's called FOMO. Have you heard of FOMO? Fear of missing out. So FOMO is a crippling anxiety that somewhere there may be a more exciting event going on. There may be something with some other group of friends that you're missing out on that you were excluded from. And it's leading to this massive anxiety and and depression problem in our young people today. Increasingly, we're a society that is so afraid of missing out that we're actually missing out on our own lives. And we're actually losing a sense of our own identities. Well, today's text pleads with us to actually be so aware of our own condition that we would exhibit the one FOMO we actually need, the one fear of missing out we actually need, which is the fear of missing out on God's rest. Rest. Rest, really. Is that, is that something that we long for? Um, maybe if you're badly overworked or you're the parent of a young child, that resonates with you. But if not, maybe rest isn't something you think about much. I mean, we're Americans, right? We want to move as fast as we can, as long as we can. We're a culture that's addicted to excitement and noise and action. But if we're honest, I think we would admit that it catches up with us after a time. Maybe that's why I see so many of those salt life stickers on cars. It took me a while to figure out what that was about, but I think it means that People want me to know that they'd rather be lying on a beach just drinking a margarita or Corona. So clearly rest is appealing to us. Or, or we can think about our obsession with retirement planning, right? Uh, our work addiction is driven by this vision of spending the last 30 years of our life playing golf or taking dance lessons at some exclusive seniors villa. Well, I'm happy today to say that God offers us a much more satisfying, a much more lasting vision of rest. And it's one that we really should be horrified to miss out on. Verse 1 begins, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So this verse uh, is the main thought of our whole passage. You guys have slides? Good, thanks. Um... This is the main thought. But in order to understand this main thought, I mean, there's some questions that we need to ask about the text. Okay, I, I see that we should fear lest we fail to enter the rest, but how, how would I enter or not enter God's rest? And when can I enter God's rest? When is it available to me? And what even is God's rest? Those are reasonable questions to ask. And they're all addressed in the text. We're actually going to look at them today in reverse order. We're going to ask first, what is this rest of God? And then we're going to ask, when could I enter God's rest? And then finally, how would I enter or not enter God's rest? So first, let's clear up from verses 9 and 10. What exactly is this rest? Why is it such a big deal? If I'm going to fear losing an opportunity, then I have to have a clear understanding of why it's so precious. And the author of Hebrews doesn't exactly tell us just straight up, the rest is this. He doesn't do that, I think, because his original audience would have had a much better understanding of the Old Testament than we typically do. So maybe when, when we're asking what is the rest, this is where we should start. We can, we can note in the text that there are two different words for rest used. The first word is just your general sort of textbook definition for rest. 
Rest is ceasing from activity. Okay, I get that. But then in verse 9, it uses a different word for rest, which you see translated as Sabbath rest, which then raises the question, okay, what exactly is Sabbath rest? In the law given by God to his people through the prophet Moses, there are ten different passages in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy that give direction concerning Sabbath rest. And basically it boils down to the idea that no work was to be done on a certain day. No work, no hunting, no cooking, no gathering, no farming, no transporting or trading. Why? Was it just to to burden the people? No, it was to set them apart. And it was to remind them of the larger plot here. They needed to remember that they were much more than their labors. They were much more than their labors. Church, do you hear that? That you are much more than your labors. The work you do is not who you are. So ancient Israel, in celebrating the Sabbath, they were being raised up into the life of God. And they were being drawn into this divine timetable that was headed toward in a trajectory of completeness. And they were given glimpses of that completeness, that they're given foretastes of that perfect rest to come. So far from being senselessly restrictive, the Sabbath law was actually deeply humanizing. There's actually um, an old Andy Griffith show episode where there's this, this slick and rude businessman and his car breaks down in the podunk town of Mayberry, and it breaks down on a Sunday. So everything is closed. Every last institution of of business is is closed. He can't get his car fixed until the next day. And at first, this guy is just so irritated. He's so furious. But then, as he has nothing to do but sit on Andy's porch, listen to guitar music, reflect and chat, well, it turns out that that Sabbath rest actually restores his joy and his sense of purpose. That's just a glimpse of of how the Sabbath is deeply humanizing in its effect. So when Jesus emerged on the scene, he reminded the people that the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath rest is a gift. And Jesus called himself Lord of the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? We get a glimpse of what that means in Matthew 11 when he announces... Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Jesus is fulfillment of this concept of Sabbath. He's the fulfillment. That's why Colossians 2 says, Let no one pass judgment on you with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. So Sabbath rest isn't, it's not just a break or a pause. It's a celebration. It's a picture of rest as completeness and perfection, and there's nothing left to be done because God in Christ has finished it all. And that's why verses 9 and 10 say, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Sabbath means resting from our works, as God did from his. Our God is a God who has accomplished rest. And so by his character, he gives rest. That's who he is. He is the God of rest. And we see this in creation, 
when he instituted the Sabbath after declaring that all was good. And we see it after the cross and the resurrection when we read that Jesus sat down on the throne of the universe, having won back rest for humanity. But if we're going to truly understand what this rest means, we need, to, we need to understand which works are we supposed to rest from, right? If I trust Christ, I'm, I'm supposed to rest. Am I just supposed to quit my job or stop mowing my lawn or washing dishes? Clearly no. But the word for works here is, is really general. How do we know which works? And a good rule of thumb when something isn't quite clear in what you're reading is just work your way out in concentric circles from that place. Look at the, the surrounding verses. Look at the surrounding chapters. Look at the whole book you're in or the whole Bible if you need to. And, and that circle could be small or large. Well, if we, we do that in this passage, looking for what works am I supposed to rest from? Within the book of Hebrews itself, we can find two different trains of thought that get after the works that we are to rest from. And first in, in chapter 6, verse 1, the author mentions what he calls the elementary doctrine of repentance from dead works. So in other words, seeking salvation means that we need to repent from works that are dead. And the Apostle Paul, of course, he gets after much the same thing in Galatians and Romans. We need to repent of trying to please God apart from Christ. We need to renounce working in a way that tries to justify ourselves to God or to ourselves or to others. Any sort of trying to build a case for our own virtue or belonging or worth or acceptability, that's a work that Christ gives us rest from. As John 6 says, the only work God requires is that we believe in Jesus, the one whom he sent. So this resting from dead works, this is the present aspect of our rest. So, are you still trying to prove your goodness to God or to others today? This text says you should actually be afraid because that seems like failing to reach the rest he's provided in Jesus. But those dead works of justifying oneself, those aren't the only works that God's rest frees us from. There's also the labors and the wanderings of a pilgrim, right? It can be hard work to rest in Christ across the trials and the temptations of this life. It is work. That's why the very next verse, actually verse 11, it says, let us strive to enter that rest. Striving, that's, that's working. It seems contradictory, right? Verse 3 says that by faith we already enter into the rest. But then verse 11 says that we also need to strive to enter that rest. It's, it's an already but not yet rest. On the one hand, it lets us, in fact, it demands that we rest from dead works now. But then it exhorts us and it empowers us to work even harder in other ways that lead to finishing the life of faith well. But the need for that sort of work won't last forever. The later chapters of Hebrews speak a lot about the divine city, the homeland of rest that we're citizens of even now, but whose shores we have yet to reach. And Revelation 14 sums up that future rest well. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. For their deeds follow them. 
So I hope you're seeing the full-orbed nature of this rest. It means joyful communion with God in rest. It, it's, it means rest from the burdens and sorrows of life. It means rest from slavery to sin. It means rest for your conscience. It means rest of your body and mind, eventual rest in heaven, where the completeness of God's perfect designs will be ours to revel in forever. So this rest is union with God. That's a simple way to say it. And this rest is also the consummation of God's purposes for all of creation. So by failing to reach this rest, you're not just missing out on an experience or an investment or a, a meeting that is going to change things for you. You're not just missing out on the chance of a lifetime. You're missing out on the very purpose for which you exist. And you're missing out forever. Well, now that we have a little bit of a grasp for what this rest is. Next, let's ask, when is God's rest available? And we can see this in verses 3b through 8. Can we enter this rest now or anytime? Um, what is the availability of this rest? When could and when can God's people enter God's rest? So verse 3 starts this sort of digression about God's rest by saying, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, so it raises the question, if God's rest was established at the founding of the world, why are we then talking about it later? Uh, why was it offered then later and, and refused later by the wilderness generation? Verses 4 and 5 continue. For he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Okay, rest is complete. And then again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. So it's, it's wrestling with this, what's going on here? Is rest here or is rest not available. So even though God's rest was established on the seventh day, all of creation clearly is not experiencing it. And to fill in the gaps, we know from elsewhere in scripture that in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rejected that rest, and they found themselves restless outside the garden. So there's something still to come. There was a goal set in motion in Genesis of restless humanity being reunited in a state of perfect completeness with the God of rest. God's rest transcends as a broader reality than the, the chaos of this world. And, and so God from his rest keeps inviting this world and keeps inviting every generation of creation to seek entry into his rest. And the pattern of Sabbath remaining from creation was to be a sign of that, a reminder of that, the availability of that rest. Genesis 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So uh, we've talked a lot about the Sabbath, but uh, apart from Sabbath, the question of land for God's people, also we see throughout the Old Testament, became an opportunity to engage with God's rest. Abraham, in his wanderings, was promised a homeland. And that land was a type. It was like a placeholder for the sort of security and peace and flourishing that God's rest would provide. As Chris mentioned last week, Psalm 95, so the, the quoted words in this text, um, that passage is actually referring to events in the time of Moses, 500 years after Abraham, 
God had saved his people from slavery in Egypt. He'd given them miraculous victory over their enemies at the Red Sea. He brought them to Mount Sinai. He gave them his good word. And then he commanded them, enter the land of rest. Enter the land of Canaan. Take it as your inheritance. Trust me that I will sweep out the evil nations that stand in your way. People refused to obey. They actually talked about going back to Egypt, to the land of slavery, instead of to the land of rest. The people were more frightened of earthly danger than they were of failing to enter God's rest. And so God sentenced that generation to wander for 40 years in the wilderness, and their children would inherit the land of rest that they had rejected. And that's all summarized nicely uh, in the last few verses of chapter 3 of Hebrews. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? Now after Moses' death, the next generation was led by Joshua, and they did enter into the land of Canaan. They found it a land of abundance, flowing with milk and honey. But then we read in the book of Judges that even though the people had settled in the land of rest, they didn't have rest from their enemies because they weren't resting in God. And so cycle after cycle of foreign invaders attacks the land. But whenever the people remember God and trust in him, then it's described that the land had rest. Then this rest in the land came to an idyllic sort of fulfillment during the reign of King David, whom we're told that God had given rest from all his surrounding enemies. Unfortunately, most of the kings after David did not lead the people to God's rest, but instead into idolatry that then led to eventual exile from the land of rest. But even in that exile, the people kept clinging to words of promise about God's rest, like in Micah chapter 4, which says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So you see this, this glimpse, this picture of rest from poverty, rest from warfare, rest from transience, rest from fear. And we know that in Jesus' day, the Jews were still looking for that rest. They were hoping that the Messiah would provide them rest from the Roman oppression. But only a remnant would find what they were longing for by accepting Jesus' rest because it looked so different than what they were expecting. So, what is this history of God's people and God's rest teach us? What is, what's the main point that we're to take away? The point is really the importance of this moment. This moment in front of us right now. Every generation has been presented with evidence of God's rest, an invitation to God's rest, and most have spurned it. And so the warning that was given in David's time still holds true for us today. Verses 6 and 7, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, 
Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The fact that these words quoted from Psalm 95, they were written in the time of David when they were in the land of rest, when they were trusting in the God of rest, and yet these words about receiving rest are still given, it shows that there was a deeper need, a deeper invitation. And today didn't just mean David's generation either. David saw in his day that God had offered something to the wilderness generation that he offers to his people in every generation. Every generation, every day, in fact, is a new opportunity for true Israelites to enter rest by faith. Will you be one of them? For the wilderness generation, God's rest meant rest in the land. For the exile generation, rest meant restoration and fuller communion with God in the land. For the first generation of Christians, though, to whom Hebrews was written, God's rest blossomed into this fuller understanding of these realities that was always there for the perceiving. It's, it's a journey from wilderness to land, from exile to home, from restlessness to Sabbath. And verse 8 gives us one more reminder that this rest is available for every generation. Saying, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Did you know that Jesus is, uh, the name Jesus is just the Greek translation of the name Joshua, the Hebrew Yeshua? It's the same name. Both mean Yahweh saves. So, even by virtue of his name, Jesus is the greater Joshua. Joshua led them into rest in the land. Jesus, the greater Joshua, leads us into an indestructible state of rest. And it's available to you today. You can seek it. You can grasp it. You can gain what people in every generation were made to enjoy but too often fail to enter. So let's turn to our third question. How exactly do we enter this rest? Verses 1 through 3a. If we need to be afraid of failing to enter this rest, we need to know, okay, what do I do? How do I enter it? I get the urgency now. How do I enter God's rest? And we discover the answer to that by learning why the generation with Moses failed to enter God's rest which we see in verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them. The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So first, note that they had heard the good news in Moses' generation. The good news is always the doorway to God's rest. You have to hear of God's mercy. You have to hear that he has provided a way for you to live in his holy presence. But just hearing the good news isn't enough. You have to believe it. And this was a fatal flaw for the people in Moses' day because they were not united by faith with those who truly listened. And this raises a question, do you believe God based on his word? Do you believe the good news? Is that why you trust God? Or do you believe him or not based on how you perceive that God is treating you? If he brings nice things into your life, are you more inclined to trust him? If he brings tragedy 
into your life? Are you more likely to kick him to the curb? The door to God's rest is not opened by kind of surfing this God wave that makes you feel good. It's opened by believing his good news. So we need to know that we are in a very similar situation to the wilderness generation. It's not easy. Your hardships and your struggles are just like theirs. And so how you respond in your wilderness wanderings will determine whether or not you enter God's salvation. Will it show true faith on your part, a belief in the good news, or will it show the grumbling of disbelief? We have to assess ourselves because presumption is the road to ruin. If you can just say, yeah, I'm part of the crowd that received the good news, well, that's not how the rest is entered. For verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. Persistent belief is the door to the rest. Creeping unbelief, that leads you to abandon the rest. If we disbelieve the good news, we will die in the wilderness. If we cling to the good news, we will enter the rest. So are you aware Are you aware this morning that you can be in the same room, you can be in the same life group, same pew or row of chairs with people Sunday after Sunday, and yet not be united by faith with those who listened? It's not exposure to the good news that decides the matter. It's firm belief in the good news. So you can't make it to God's rest by just being in the right crowd. If you don't truly believe that your rest is found in Christ, then you're in great peril. Now, what do we mean when we say believe, right? That, that feels a little slippery. How can you know if you really believe? We enter God's rest by belief, but another way to think of it is that rest requires belief because belief is resting too. It's a little tricky. Follow me here. We're always resting in or on something, Right? We're always resting in something because we believe it's a safe place to stop. Now, in the, in the mid-1800s, there's a Scottish missionary named John Patton who went to, actually, cannibals on the New Hebrides Islands in the Pacific. And he was translating the Bible into the Onawa language. He was, he was just puzzled because there was no word in their language for belief, for faith, which is kind of an important concept in the Bible. So he was stuck on this problem until one day he heard one man say to another, it is good to stretch yourself out here and rest. And then it came to him, light bulb, rest was the key for explaining faith. If you want God's rest, his life-transforming, unending Sabbath rest that we've been talking about, then you must have the faith to rest in him. And this rest of belief is a concrete display of trust. So belief means that you trust You trust in such a way that you're able to yield yourself to God. You're able to rest on him. Um, Last night we came home uh, after dark, and my son's vivid imagination made him worried that something or someone sinister was upstairs. Um, Now Sarah was telling him, hey, you can rest easy. You're safe with us. But he didn't didn't believe her. (laughs) He wasn't trusting her. He wasn't resting in her words. And so he just wasn't able for a time to stop fretting. He wasn't able to enter the rest of sleep. 
because he didn't rest in her words and believe her words, he wasn't able to reach the rest that he needed. Or there's the old analogy of a chair. Okay, how do I show that I trust this chair to hold me? I sit down. I have to rest on it. So similarly, what does it look to was it look like to believe that Jesus leads me to rest? I have to rest on him. It looks like forsaking the dead works that you're tempted to lean on, not striving to justify yourself before God and man. Instead, you're living like, as Colossians says, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's scary. That's a scary way to live. You have to rest in something that you can't see. You have to trust that it's true and will be revealed in the end. Those who believe the good news rest like the rest is real. They bank on it. They don't hedge their bets. And they look absolutely nutty to the rest of the world who are frantically clamoring to secure their own rest through methods apart from Christ. This can all be so fuzzy. I know that. Can't two people both basically look like they're believing and trusting, but one of them is living out of true faith, and then the other is actually just living a facade, uh, living a charade that in the end is going to prove to be dead works. Yes, Scripture says that that's a reality. So how do we make sure that we aren't the ones who are hardened, that we don't have unbelieving hearts? How do we make sure that we're not actually resting somewhere other than in Christ? And verse 1 here gives us the answer. It says that we fear. We fear. We're actually commanded here to fear. The Greek text literally says, let us be afraid. Well, that doesn't sound very Christian. What about 1 John 4.18, which says, Perfect love casts out all fear. I thought God didn't want me to be afraid. I thought that his love would take away fear from me. Yes, but this is an example of how we have to know Scripture in its context, not just isolated verses. You have to reckon with the whole Bible and see how different parts complement and interpret others. So it's true that belonging to Christ takes away fear. That is true. It's also true that the Bible tells us in about 80 different places that we must fear God. And the picture that's painted is that if we fear God, we need not fear anything else. One good and central fear dispels all others. So the fear of God, while being a tr truly a real fear, it's the one fear that doesn't bind us. It's a fear that liberates us a fear that frees us. When we fear God rightly, we fear being counted as his enemy instead of as his friend, and so it compels us to run to him, not away from him for safety. And you can see this dynamic just a few verses down in, in chapter 4, verse 16. It says, Brett referred to this verse earlier, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We're going to God because we fear him, not away from him. Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So having the right fear is the essential path to finding the right help. Now the book of Hebrews reminds us a lot about the fear that we should have. Um, chapter 10 verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But assuming that we start out right, 
with, with that fear at the center of our lives, well then, Hebrews also shows us how that right fear dispels all other fears. Chapter 2 spoke of how Jesus delivers us from lifelong slavery to the fear of death. Chapter 11 tells us that by faith, Moses was not afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Chapter 13 reminds us that the fear of God dispels the fear of man. It says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If the one who can deliver me from all these lesser fears then tells me, hey, here, I want you to be afraid. I think we should listen to him. We're to fear while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Meaning that whatever this rest is, at some point, while it's available to every generation, at some point it won't be available to me anymore or to you anymore. None of us knows how long we'll have breath, how long we'll, we'll be alive on this earth. And even if we were going to live for many more years, how long before we take this opportunity for granted and our hearts are hardened and we forget all about the opportunity to enter this rest, and we spit on it. So the rest, while available in every generation, it's not available to you forever. It depends on you having breath. It depends on you having a soft heart to receive it. But today, for you hearing these words, this rest still stands it's kind of like those blast doors on the Death Star in Star Wars. You know, they close, they close diagonally. And um, right now, the door is open. But you've got to run through like Han Solo before that doorway closes on you, right? You've got to kind of crouch and, and get right through there. Or to stick with a, a sci-fi motif, it's think of a wormhole that connects two different dimensions, okay? If you want to get to this other world and there's this wormhole connecting them, you got to take the chance while you can because once it's gone, there's no other way to force your entry. Well, we've seen that this rest is so urgent. This rest is so valuable. And the text tells us we shouldn't only fear that we're not going to enter the rest. Verse 1 actually brings it back a step even from that. It says, we should fear lest any should even seem to fail to enter the rest. It's, it's like you're dealing with a nuclear reactor. You don't just perform a safety check. You perform a check on the check of the safety check because it's that important. And I want you to notice also that verse 1 says, let us fear, lest any. So certainly implied is that if you yourself have seemed to have failed to enter God's rest, yes, you should be afraid. But also, this is plural, let us fear lest any, singular, should seem to have failed to reach it. So there's a corporate responsibility for any straggling individual. You can think about how in the midst of warfare, a group of um, soldiers has to move in tight formation, and they have to keep eyes, uh, they have to look for any who are falling behind or who are walking into danger, and they have to communicate. And, and if there's a danger, they all adjust their strategy. If someone's straggling behind, they all adjust their strategy. And it's, again, it's, it's the same in the church. This brings us back to chapter 3, verse 13, which says, Exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have a mutual responsibility for each other. Which is why 
we take meeting in small groups seriously. That's, that's a way that our local church gets after this principle. So if you haven't gotten involved in life groups, I, I plead with you to do so when they reset in September. And for those of you who are in life groups, uh, there are going to be some slight changes to our format. And that's because we really just want to strive to make these the best possible context for getting after this, for exhorting one another, for protecting one another from the deceitfulness of sin, for helping each other to enter God's rest. So we'll talk about those coming changes next Sunday night at the members' meeting. And if any of this sounds scary, uh, it shouldn't. This sort of life together, it's as simple as spending deliberate time to focus together on who God is, God who is our rest. We want to see him together. We want to celebrate him together. And then we want to share the journey of trusting him together. And if you're not sure, you're not sure that if you're seeming to fail to reach God's rest, maybe some of this healthy fear that, that's talked about here is kind of tugging at you today. Well, I want to plead with you and I want to comfort you by reminding you that the promise of entering his rest still stands. Aren't you tired today? Don't you want rest from the restlessness? Well, the promise says that if you are weary and heavy laden, you can come to Jesus. He will give you rest. You can ask him right now, right where you're seated right now, you can ask him to lead you to rest. You can just say something like, come Lord Jesus, give me your rest. And if truly prayed in faith, that will invite him in. And maybe you've said words like that before, right? Maybe the, like the original audience of the book of Hebrews and like the wilderness generation, you've actually gone through some formalities like that in the past, but maybe your heart wasn't engaged as it should have been. And if you're honest, the Holy Spirit is revealing to you today a question of whether or not you truly are united by faith with those who listened. Because it's not as simple as just saying words. It's not as simple as just being in the right place. You have to trust him more than you trust yourself, more than you trust any other potential source of rest. You have to trust him more than your IRA. You have to trust him more than your dreams of a happy family, more than food or alcohol or sex. You have to trust him more than your own virtuous achievements. You have to trust him more than the good opinion of other people at your workplace or on Facebook. Where are you trying to rest? Others may be deceived by appearances. You, you may have convinced yourself that you're okay, but God sees the heart. So where are you trying to rest? And maybe you haven't rejected the rest, but you at least might seem to have failed to reach it based on things you've been running after, things you've been hoping in. So I beg you, be honest with him now. Don't miss out on the one source of rest that lasts. Don't abandon yourself to eternal restlessness. Let this right fear lead you to confessing before God any, any areas of unbelief and the ways that that manifests itself. So ask him for the mercy of forgiveness, for the gift of faith, to believe his promises and enter his rest. That is a prayer that he will always answer. Let's pray to him now. God, we have all at various times exhibited mistrust and doubt of your promises. Some of us have been doing this habitually. We've been grasping for rest elsewhere while claiming to trust in you. So God, we just 
pray that you'd open our eyes, that you would peel off the veneer of our lives and let us see what's really there and give us this right fear that's talked about in this text. Because God, we do want your rest. We know it's freely given. We know that it's, it's the best haven for our souls. It's the only haven for our souls. So God, give us this right fear. And then as often as that fear emerges, we pray that you would calm that fear by giving us experiences of rest with you, down payments of the great rest to come. And Lord, we pray that your Sabbath rest would define our lives, would be the, the, the tone through which everything else plays out until the day when the struggle is over and the rest is full. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.